It's easy to do what's right when things are easy, isn't it? It's a whole different story when things are tough. We understand this where people usually aren't tempted to, say, cheat on a test if they've studied for the material. We're usually not tempted to cheat on a spouse if our marriage is going well. We're usually not tempted to steal if we have enough to eat. It's easy to do what's right when things are easy. Similarly, it's easy to love when people act lovely. You parents understand this pretty well. It's easy to love your children when they're cute and sweet and obedient and cleaning their room and doing their homework and all the things that they're supposed to do and they're generally a joy to be around. It's easy to love them and you take pictures and you share them with your friends and you brag about them. But it's a little bit more difficult, isn't it, when they're rebellious, when they're throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of the grocery store or throwing their food on the floor or sneaking out at night and hanging out with people they shouldn't hang out with or talking back or all of the things that children sometimes tend to do. It's a little bit more difficult in times like that to to love your children, isn't it? You children probably understand this. It's easy to love your parents when they're making sure that you have enough to eat and clothes on your back and they're being kind and loving and doing all of the things that good parents do. But it's a little bit more difficult to love them, isn't it, when that human side of them shows up and maybe they have a temper or they say something they shouldn't have said or they lash out or they're just difficult to be around. You husbands and wives understand this. It's easy to love our spouses, isn't it, when our spouses are acting lovely. When they're being sweet and kind and taking us out on dates or making dinner or mowing the grass or doing the honey-do list or all of the things that we like our spouse to do and they're being lovely, it's easy to love them. But it's more difficult, isn't it, when that human side of our spouse shows up and they have an attitude or they say something that they shouldn't say or they show some temper or they don't do what they say they're going to do. And when they're difficult to be around, it's a little bit more difficult to love them, isn't it? It's easy to have faith when things are easy, when things are going well. It's easy to believe that God loves us and wants the best for us when we have a good diagnosis, when we have a good paying job, when there's money in the bank and we've got a roof to live under. It's easy to to have faith in God when things are going well. It's a bit of a different story, though, isn't it? When things aren't going as well, when there's a poor diagnosis, when we lose a job, when a relationship ends. When we lose a loved one, it's, it's a little bit harder to believe that God loves us and wants the best for us. It's easy to be a Christian when there's no resistance. But what about when our commitment to following Jesus comes at a cost? What about when our commitment to following Jesus causes resistance? What about when our commitment to following Jesus makes us enemies? Jesus' own life demonstrates that the way of the kingdom of God is not without resistance, and it's not without suffering. When we look at Jesus' life, we see that his commitment to nonviolent love, his commitment to stand against the oppressive systems of his day, caused some resistance and made him some enemies. Over the next several weeks, we're going to spend time taking an in-depth look at some of the final hours and some of the final events of Jesus' life. We're going to see as he is betrayed by a follower and a friend. We're going to see as he's unjustly arrested and given a false trial by the religious leaders of the day. As he's abandoned by those closest to him, as he's tortured and crucified by the Roman government. We're going to see how Jesus responded when he was mistreated, 
abused, rejected, mocked. And we're going to ask ourselves what that means for those of us who claim to follow Jesus today. The earliest followers of Jesus, the ones who write, who wrote the documents that we call the New Testament, tell us that if we follow Jesus for long enough, we're going to experience some of the sufferings that Jesus experienced. We're going to experience some of the resistance that he experienced, some of the pain that he experienced, some of the abandonment that he experienced, that if we follow him, if we really follow in the way of God, that things are not always going to go easy for us. Things are not always going to go well. And so we have to choose in those moments, how are we going to respond? I told you in the fall when we began this overall series that I called Follow Me that we're going to look at Jesus' life and his teachings. And we're going to see how he lives so that we can become more and more like him in the way that we live our lives. And we believe, Scripture tells us, that we've been given the Spirit of Christ, those of us who are followers of Christ, that that Spirit empowers us to live like Christ. And so we're going to ask ourselves, how did Jesus respond when things got tough? How did Jesus respond when he was mistreated? How did Jesus respond when he was abandoned, mocked, and abused by others? And we're going to ask ourselves, how can we respond in the same way? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. As usual, I'll go ahead and put the text on the screen. You can follow along there. Luke chapter 22. We'll begin in verse 7. Today and next week, we're going to look at some of the hours preceding Jesus' arrest. We're going to jump into the story a few hours before he was arrested by the religious leaders of the day. We're going to follow him through some of his final interactions with his closest followers. Because as most of you understand, a person's last words tend to carry extra weight. Right? We understand that if a person knows that they're going to die, that what they have to say on their deathbed usually carries extra weight. It's, it's, the, it's the result of deep reflection and contemplation. And so we want to spend some time and pay extra close attention to the things that Jesus has to say to his closest followers before he goes off to be crucified. Luke chapter 22, verse 7, this is how it begins. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, I want to take just a minute and talk to you a little bit about the Passover. You, you, if you've been following Jesus, you've been studying the Bible, you probably know about this, but I'll give you just a bit of a reminder. The Passover is probably the quintessential event in the history of the children of Israel. As you read through the story of the Old Testament, you see that God was working within his leaders to free his people who had been oppressed in Egypt. God's people had come to Egypt. They had grown and multiplied. And Pharaoh at the time had oppressed the people of Egypt, had made them slaves and had made them work and was abusing them and mistreating them. And so God shows up using a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the land that he had promised their ancestor Abraham. And so this Passover event, this Exodus event is the quintessential event in the history of the children of Israel. It was what defined them. Every year they would celebrate this Passover meal. If you've seen the movie or you've read the story, you're familiar with the ten plagues culminating in the Passover when the firstborn of every child in Egypt uh, was killed by the destroyer. And the, the Passover lamb that the, children, that the Israelites slew, that they ate the, they ate the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And, and that, that 
that blood over the doorpost was a sign to the destroyer that he had to pass over that house and he couldn't affect the people living in it. And so this Passover event, which culminated in the Exodus and God's people leaving Egypt, they celebrated this year after year after year as a celebration of God's rescuing power, of the way that God showed up and delivered his people from oppression. And so every year as they would celebrate this meal, they would thank God for his providence in rescuing their ancestors 1,500 years ago at this point in the story. It was something that they celebrated year after year, much like we celebrate the story of Christmas, Jesus showing up. And we celebrate that every year as a reminder, as a remembrance that Jesus showed up at a particular point in time. This is what Passover was to the Israelites. And for the Israelites in that time, they were, they were hoping, they were believing that God would show up once again. As Jesus shows up on the scene, we know that the Israelites have been oppressed by the Roman government. They're occupied by the Roman government. They're not free like they believe that they should be. They haven't been free now for centuries. Different kingdoms have come in and and had occupied them from time to time. And so they're believing that God will show up again at some point and lead them into a new exodus. We'll we'll forgive them of their sins and free them from this uh, foreign occupation, this foreign oppression. So as they celebrate the past, they're looking towards the future when God will once again show up and liberate them from the powers that are holding them in oppression. And so Jesus is sending his disciples. Jesus was a, was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher. He's sending his disciples to prepare the Passover. It was probably something that they had done at least once before, if not two or three times. Scholars sometimes debate how long the ministry of Jesus was, somewhere from one year to three years, depending on how you read the gospel. So for the, for the disciples of Jesus to go and prepare the Passover, they, they probably didn't think much of it. They probably didn't think much of it. It was something that they would have done every year as they grew up, and now they're doing it again with their master. But Jesus, now, it's different for him. As he's sending his disciples to prepare for the Passover, he knows that it's not just any other meal. It's not just one... This isn't just business as usual. Jesus, as he's sending them to make preparations for the Passover, is preparing himself for his final departure. And he's preparing to prepare his disciples for how they're going to live when he's gone. So his disciples ask, how do you want us to prepare for it? He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Luke tells us they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And as I think about this, as I think about Peter and John, as they're going about this, they don't seem to understand the gravity of the situation. Jesus had told them time and time again that he was going to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer and be killed, but they never seemed to grasp it because in their minds, messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs aren't killed by the oppressors. Messiahs lead revolutions that will free them from oppressors. And so they never seem to grasp the fact. So as they're preparing for this Passover, they don't seem to understand the gravity of what it is that they're doing. And yet in Jesus' heart and Jesus' mind, he is preparing to prepare them for life without him. He's, he's wondering, you know, and he's planning on, on what he needs to leave them with so that they can be successful in his absence. Luke goes on, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at table and he said to them. Now, before we look at what Jesus says, I, I just want you to think about what would you say if you knew that you had one final meal left with those who were closest with you? 
If you knew you only had a few hours left and you were going to gather for one final meal with, with those who are closest to you, what would you say? What would you want them to think about? What would you want them to understand? What would you want them to remember? What would you want to impress upon them so that when you were gone, they could live in a way that would make you proud and honor your life? What would you say if you knew that you were coming to your final meal with those who were closest to you? So we're going to look at what Jesus has to say in this final meal, in these final hours. We're going to, we're going to pay attention to, to the instructions and, and, the, and the message that Jesus gives his disciples. And, and we're going to pay close attention because we know that this meal wasn't like any other. That what Jesus is telling his followers at this particular moment in time carries incredible weight and incredible significance. That he is preparing them for the time when he is no longer going to be with them. Here's what he says. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Imagine being in that room with Jesus, who you've spent months, if not years, following as he's traveled, as he's taught, as he's healed, as he's invested in you, and he's telling you that this is the last time that he's going to be eating with you. Imagine how you would feel in that particular moment, what you would say. Many of you have probably experienced this with someone that you loved as you spent the final hours with someone as they were on their way out of this world. And and you can just understand the, the gravity of that moment, the significance of those final moments together. It goes on, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, this is pretty heavy stuff. This is pretty significant stuff that Jesus is saying. And, and, and we, don't under, we don't know if his disciples really grasped the gravity and the weight of what was going on. The story goes on. It says, He took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, for those of us who have been Christians for years, we've heard this passage read over and over again, you know, usually every month as we celebrate communion. And it's easy for us sometimes, for us 21st century non-Jewish Westerners, to really miss the significance of what was really happening at this moment. Jesus taking this meal, this Passover meal, that was supposed to be about what God had done 1,500 years ago in the past, and now he's reinterpreting it in light of himself. If we really think about it, this is actually pretty scandalous. To borrow an illustration from one of my favorite preachers, I'd like you to think about if the the Reverend Billy Graham, if he knew that he was going to be passing away soon, and so he comes on television and he speaks to all of the Christians and he says, I know that you have been celebrating Christmas all of these years and you've been looking backwards towards Jesus, but going forward I would like you to take this holiday and I'd like you now to, re- to remember me instead. We would say, hold on just a second, Billy. We love you. You've, do- you've done great things for God, but, but that's going a little far, isn't it? 
That's, that's what it would have been like for Jesus' apostles hearing Jesus take this 1,500-year-old celebration that, that pointed backwards to what God had done and now reinterpret it in light of himself and what is going to be happening now in the future. This is a, this is a hallmark moment. We see that Jesus is now, basically what he's saying is, I am the new Passover. I am the new Exodus. What God did for our ancestors 1,500 years ago in liberating them from the powers that oppress them is going to happen now through me. I now am taking the place of the Passover lamb. Jesus is showing us, I now am going to step in the way of the destroyer. I'm going to take upon myself the punishment for the sins of the people. I'm doing this act of love. And so moving forward, this, this new Passover, this new Exodus, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. He talks about a cup, which is a new covenant in his blood. This is a big deal, right? This is a big deal. When God made his covenant with the children of Israel back in the Old Testament, that was a big deal. As he brought them out of Exodus, as he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, he gathered them together after this rescue. And he said, I am now going to establish my covenant with you. I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And this new covenant included in a way that they were supposed to live in agreement on how they were supposed to live now that God had rescued them. Now remember, God didn't tell them, God didn't establish this new code of conduct, this new law with them until He had rescued them. But this this old covenant was what carried them through these last 1,500 years or so to this particular moment in time where Jesus is gathered just with His closest friends and He's saying that what God did for our ancestors 1,500 years ago, He's doing again through me. And this time it's not just for, it's not just for the children of Israel, but it's for everyone. And I, myself, am taking the place of the Passover lamb. Once and for all, the final sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. This, cu- this cup is the new covenant. It's a new agreement between God and humanity. There's going to be a new agreement between God and humans in terms of how we're going to live. And it's going to happen through my blood, which is poured out for you. This means that he's going to die. He's explaining that he's going in the greatest act of sacrificial love in all of history, that he is going to pour himself out. Literally, his blood is going to be poured out as he, is, as he dies for the sins of the world. This cup is my new covenant, which is poured out for you. And so as he's doing this, he's giving them something to remember them by. He's saying, I'm not going to be with you physically much longer after this, but I'm going to give you something so that you can remember me. So that you can remember what's taking place here in this moment and what's going to take place in the next couple of days as I'm arrested and crucified. I'm going to give you a new memorial, just like Passover was a memorial for our ancestors for 1,500 years. I'm giving you a new memorial so that you can remember the significance of what is taking place here in my life and my death. I'm going to read to you a quote from the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. This is what he says. When Jesus wanted to give his followers, then and now, a way of understanding what was about to happen to him, he didn't teach them a theory. He gave them a meal to share. I love this. I love this. That Jesus, you know, because we, we, have, we have lots of theories in Christianity about how Jesus' death really worked about how it is that his death covers for our sins and sets us free. There's, there's lots of good theological theories out there, and they're good, and, and they have their place. But, but in this final moment, Jesus didn't give his disciples a theory. 
He gave them an action to take and a meal to share. And, and I believe as he's doing this, he's using things that are common to their everyday experience. And he's infusing them with deep meaning. He's taking the bread that they would break every day together. He's giving them a cup that they would share every day together. He's saying, as you do these things, every day as you break bread together, every day as you drink this cup together, I want you to remember what's going on here and what's going on now. I want you to remember this act of sacrificial love that I'm making on your behalf. He's giving them something that he's hoping that as they gather together, they're going to share this meal and it's going to inspire them every day, every week as they share this meal together, they would be inspired, that they would be encouraged, that they would be challenged to continue to live up, to to honor and to live uh, in a way that, that honors the sacrifice that he made. He's giving them something, not just a theory, not just something that they can hold in their head, but something that they can do, that they can hold in their hands, that they can share together. And I've told you this before, I love how we do communion, you know, as a ceremony within the church, and we're going to do that today. I know it's not the first of the month, but I figured it would be remiss to talk about this without sharing in the, in the meal together. But, but I believe that what Jesus had in mind here was not just a once a month occurrence or a once a year occurrence, that he was talking about a meal that they would partake of daily or weekly. That as they got together every day or every week, as they shared whatever meal they were eating, he took the bread that they had every day. He's saying, every time that you do this, every time that you break bread together, I want you to remember me and what I've done for you. Every time that you you share this cup, I want you to remember me and what I've done for you. So, you know, doing it together in church is great and it's wonderful, but that's not enough. It's every time we gather together. When When you sit around your table as a family, and you break bread as you, as you eat together. We give thanks and we remember. When you go out to lunch with your friends after church and you break bread and you, and you have whatever cup is in front of you, you, you take that as an opportunity to remember, to be encouraged. He gave us something to hold in our hands that every time we hold it, we remember what he's done. And we're encouraged and we're inspired and we're challenged to, to live in a way that honors the sacrifice that he made for us in love. He didn't teach them a theory. He gave them a meal to share. Luke goes on. This is what he says. Jesus is continuing to speak. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Can you imagine? Can you imagine sitting around a table... What, with what you know is going to be your last meals, and one of your closest followers, somebody who's been with you for months, if not years, you know is going to betray you. And yet what I love about this is Jesus invited him anyway. Jesus included him anyway, knowing full well that he was going to betray him. That he was going to walk away and turn him over to the very people who would beat, arrest, torture, and crucify him. And yet he invited him anyway. He included him anyway. He loved him anyway. Now he goes on to say, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Things don't turn out well for Judas. But Jesus gave him the chance. People talk about, you know, love. Do you love someone who you know is going to betray you? Do you invite somebody who has hurt you, who you know has hurt you in the past? Do you include them anyway? Do you love them anyway? You know, this right here, this is why I believe that everyone is welcome at the table when we share communion. 
We've talked about this before. There are other Christian traditions where not everyone is welcome. You have to affirm a certain belief. You have to be a member of that particular church or denomination. This is why I really believe that in Christianity, the way that Jesus intended it, that everyone is welcome at the table. Because Jesus included Judas. And he was welcome at the table, even though he was going to turn around and betray him and walk away. This is why I believe everyone is welcome at the table. This is why when we share communion, I believe that Jesus invites everyone to share in the meal that he hosts. And Jesus is the host when we share communion at the table. So here's what I want you to remember from this. Jesus' love was tough enough for everyone. Jesus' love was tough enough for everyone. Some versions of love out there are too fragile to be shared with people who don't, quote unquote, deserve it. But Jesus' love was tough enough for everyone. When we look at, when we ask ourselves what love is, our, our culture seems to look at things like love and compassion and view them as weakness. People who have compassion and who have love. But we see that Jesus' version of love was tough. Jesus' version of love was tougher than nails, tougher than Roman steel. And it was tough enough for him to go to the cross on our behalf. Jesus' version of love was tough enough for everyone. Are we tough enough to love like Jesus? So I'm going to have a word of prayer. And then we're going to share communion together. And as we share this meal, it's my prayer that it would inspire us. That it would encourage us. That it would challenge us to live up to Jesus' example and His sacrifice for us. That we would remember that we've been given the Spirit of Christ. That our love shouldn't be subject to circumstance. That even when we are betrayed and mistreated and abused, that we can respond like Jesus did with tough love. Lord, we thank You for these stories. We thank You for recording them for us in Scripture. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. For the incredible act of sacrificial love on behalf of a world that didn't deserve it. Fathers, we look at Jesus in his final hours as he prepares his followers for life without him as, as he is selfless and loving till the end, inviting even the one who would betray him. Father, we pray that you would form that in us. That you would form Christ in us. That you would conform us more and more to his image. Father, as we share this meal together, as we break bread, as we partake in the cup, we pray that it would inspire us. We pray that it would challenge us. We pray that it would encourage us, Father, to live in a way that honors the sacrifice of your Son that honors that great act of sacrificial love, that it would inspire us to love more deeply, to love those who don't deserve it, because we didn't deserve it, God, and yet you loved us anyway. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, you loved us anyway. Father, form Christ in us. Give us his tough love for those who do deserve it, and for those who don't. Help us to reflect him in all that we do. May this meal that we share bring us together and remind us of that tough love. We thank you for this in the strong and the powerful name of your Son who died for our sins, Jesus Christ.
Amen.